Hi, Paul. How are you? Yeah, going well. Good to see you again. We're up to the third commandment, which is is pretty exciting because I think there could be people out there with some misunderstandings about what this means for us and what it doesn't mean. So I'll ask Mm -hmm. you about that in a minute. But first, I'll read the commandment. It comes from Exodus 20, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. A little bit perhaps old language there, taking somebody's mm. name in vain. Mm. What do you think it means for us today? And, what, and more importantly, what doesn't it mean? Well, yeah, because what it means and what it doesn't mean is actually tied up in the word vain. Because God could say, look, when you use my name, use it so that it is useful and productive rather than use it in, in a way that is absolutely futile and destructive. So in vain means don't use my name in such a way that it's going to do damage. Use it in such a way that it is actually going to bring blessing and uh, truth and reality and who I am, which is my name, God says. So let the I am reveal who God is, not what you have an opinion about, which could be way off track. Or don't use God's name as an endorsement for what your identity is and say, oh yeah, this is God doing this, when that's using the name badly, in vain. That's your product putting his label on it. That's the kind of real problem that comes up with God relating to us and even more so through us to people. He says, you want to use my name? Here it is. Now use it properly, please. Mm. Do you you think that relates to people who perhaps have their own ideas about things, and pres- but present them as God's idea. Is that the kind of thing you're talking about? Yeah, yeah. That's, the, that's the kind of thing. They could actually even be people that God has allowed, who's told them that they can use his name. Like the, the first people that God entrusted his name to was Israel, and they didn't know how to find a concept of God. He had to reveal himself, and that's that's the way God works with us. He lets us know who he is. And the first time he got questioned about who are you, because he spoke to Moses and said, go and tell my people that they're going to be set free, and you're the one, Moses, go and tell them. And he, Moses said, well, who do I tell them? Send me. And so he says, I am. So that was the, that was his name. So that's the best expression you can have for God's name. So he entrusted them with the name, the I am God, Mm. and then began to reveal himself. Now, what happened was they, being human, felt that this was a real privilege. It was a status. We are the bearers of the name of God. But the way they acted with the label God was very destructive, their behaviour was so bad at a certain point. I'm not saying it was always bad. In fact, I I think they did a great job in being able to bring the reality of who God was into the world and they nurtured that beautifully with the scriptures and the scrolls. But by the time the apostles are writing to Israel after Jesus came, the apostle Paul is writing, he said, Because of you, the name of God is being blasphemed amongst people who don't believe in God. So there was a debt to pay because of the misuse of the name. So what they'd done 
whatever it was that they'd done, Paul said, you're accountable for the fact that you've made people think about God in such a way that does his name disrepute. That was him allowing people to use his name. I think it's the same with Christians who use the name of Jesus. Now, how carefully or carelessly do people use that name? They can use it to promote themselves and make promises you know, in God's name. Well, I think it does... Does God want to endorse every single product or every kind of endeavour that a person's got? So that's what I mean about the name. I think the most common interpretation is around using God's name as a swear word or a cursing, cursing word. Cursing, yeah. yeah. It's strange that uh, people pick on the most sacred thing there is and turn it into something that you just kick around like a bit of rubbish. Um, and, and that's a strange phenomenon, you know, to take that name and to use it as a, as a curse word or as a swear word. And that certainly is offensive, I believe. I don't think it has the depth of purposeful offence that somebody who's mis mischievously wanting to use that name in order to gain money or their own reputation. But it is careless. It's just like if you go up to your friend's place and you decide because you're, you're in, the, in the mood to do it, careless, and you feel um, you've got a right to do anything you like, say anything you like, do anything you like, and you write graffiti all over the, your neighbour's house. And you go and have a laugh. Yeah, that was a laugh. Doesn't that look funny? Um, I can do what I like. I, I think that's the kind of low-level disrepute that you can do with somebody's name or somebody's property uh, something that they value and you desecrate it like that. Yeah, so that's, that comes into it. Mm. But I think that's just low-level stuff that people get to because they're in a bad mood or careless or feel entitled to be able to say what they like or it makes them feel that they are cool. You know, I can use any word I like and nobody can stop me. That's carelessness. But I don't believe that's what the commandment is really aiming at even though it sweeps up a whole, a whole lot of dust when it, it is actually sitting there to be looked at and observed. Mm. You know, it's a funny thing. The whole idea of the commandments was to reveal to people where they were getting life wrong. It wasn't just to judge them. It was to make them aware that here is something I don't want you to do. And they're all thou shalt nots, right? Except for one, and that is... I want you to obey the Sabbath, which is number four, which we're, we're not on yet. We're on to number three. So thou shalt not. And Paul, when he's writing to the, the Christians, he's talking about being under the commandments. And he said, before I knew that there was a thou shalt not, I felt free to do anything. He's probably talking about being a kid, you know, at a certain age. But he said, then when the commandment came, you shall not covet. He said, the law began to live and it killed me. In other words, there's something in us that when you're told, don't do that, our response is, oh, yes, I will. That's called the law of sin and death. And it's in every human being. It's been there for all time. And God, in his wisdom, he knew that if he told people not to do something, their impulse would be, well, that puts a restriction and restraint on my independence and the sense of my entitlement to be who I am and do, do what I want and have what I want. No way am I, I'm going to be put under that kind of a restriction. So that's the re human reaction of autonomy and independence, and I don't need God. It's rebellion, really. Isn't that's it? rebellion. And in fact, 
people think that sin and temptation started uh, after Adam sinned. But uh, Adam was under that law. There were no commandments. But God had said to him, don't eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He said to Adam and Eve. Well, what was their response? What do you mean? Don't. I've never heard you say that before, God. That's an interesting concept. Don't. No, I think I will. Okay, bingo. We have the law of sin and death introduced. Well, expressed. It was there because we are people that are under God, if we know it or not. And so our reaction will be to be autonomous and independent. So that's the commandments. That's what they're generally there. They're there to help us become aware of the things that if we'll accept the wisdom of them, we won't just automatically want to see it and rebel against it. We'll we'll look at ourselves and say, don't tell lies, eh? Yeah, well, hang on. I wonder if I do tell lies. And we get, we get an awareness and we think, if this is wise for me, if it's better for me to live a life of truth, then I, I might test this out. And you'll find that if you do, you'll find your life goes a lot better, even though you pay for testing doing truth. But so it's not meant to condemn you, it's meant to help you to be aware of what's good for you by showing it what's bad for you. Okay, yeah. so so with, with this one, don't take the name of the Lord in vain. At the lowest level, it's going to be broken. But at the highest level, it can be a pitfall for people who think that they've got God's backing when they haven't, mm. right? They don't have the status of using his name the way they manipulatively think they can. Mm. That's the big, I reckon, the big red, red flag. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And so if we take that back to us individually, yeah. what are our responsibilities under this, this commandment, as you said? Well, then, it's a matter of being able to relate to the title that God gives himself, which is I am, <laughs> To be able to do that in such a way that we honour that. It's a simple matter on the outside as far as your behaviour of honour or dishonour. You're either honouring somebody's name because you respect that name and it is it means a lot to you. And so your life will be guided by the fact that this means everything to you, this person's name, you will honour. Because that person obviously is somebody that you see has brought you. If you're looking for who is this God we're talking about, who calls himself I Am. By the way, Israel called him Yahweh. They call that the Tetragrammaton, which they weren't even allowed to say the word, you know. Y-H-W-H. So they, with those four letters, condensed the name. And scholars still argue as to what is that name actually mean uh, basically is all to do with I am with being it's like it can be kind of a consensus among scholars that it is uh, he is the one that exists and brings everything else into existence so there is your I am so if we want to get to know the I am then there will be a way for us to appropriately inquire of I am by saying, well, who are you? And there's a a beautiful scripture verse in in Psalm 46 where David says, be still and know that I am God. So there's an invitation. I think that's very simple, straightforward, but that becomes the centre, the anchor for your life. It's got all the gravity. It becomes the thing that... And that's faith the reality of who you are in relation to who he is. It will cause you to be still, 
to be to listen, to be attentive to things that a God who introduces himself as I am would obviously want to talk to you about because he wouldn't say I am and I don't want any questions I'm not even here to talk to you just find what you want to do and I'll send you a fax as to what to do he's not a God like that he's bringing himself into our lives saying I am I exist and you can be still and know with a particular way of knowing that I reveal to you of who I am. And that becomes our life's journey. Mm. As far as God's concerned, that's what he wants for us. Mm. Rather so than God, it's, it's all about relationship yeah, with it him. Is. Yeah. And, and having a respect for that relationship because yeah. we, we have a knowledge of who God is. Who God is. Yeah. On, just on the, on the Yahweh, uh, yeah. the tetragrammaton. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's translated in most Bibles as Lord in capital letters, isn't it? That's right. L-O-R-D. Yeah. In the English, it's, yeah, it's, yeah, it's sort of L, a capital L-O-R-D, Lord. Yeah. So that's how people can find Lord. it in their Bibles. If that's that's how they'll read That's how yeah. it'll come in. Um, there are other words like Elohim and, and, and different words for God and so on, but that one is, is in our English language, it's, it's called capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah. What do you think the impact of breaching this commandment has on our faith? It would be something that we would only find out by getting it wrong. It's sort of something, it's very hard to, in theory, tell somebody this will ruin your faith. What What I see is that people would presume that they are using the name correctly and therefore say that they are able to receive certain promises or blessings and promise them to other people and that by just using the name, attaching it to it, then they would get what they wanted because they would read scriptures like, you know, ask and you shall receive and ask things in my name. And they'd say, oh, there's a ticket. There's a ticket to a free ride. I'll ask in his name. I'm going to get it. Now, and so what I mean by you only find out what you're doing wrong when you try that and it fails and then you realise... Well, why didn't that work? I used his name. Yeah, but you didn't use it properly. What do you mean? I read it. I read it. There it is. I used the name of Jesus and what I wanted didn't happen. So there's something wrong with faith. I haven't got enough faith. That's what what happens to faith, which is not faith. It's presumption because they're just using a name, letters. They could say abracadabra. That's another name. Or it's another word. So what happens is this whole kind of fake faith is a misdirected understanding of the nature of the person, God, who has his will to do what he wants and invites you on board to do his will with him. Mm. So that, yes, you ask in his name so that he will get what he wants done, not what you demand he does. James writing in, in the Bible says, you ask and you don't receive, right? Or you don't have because you don't ask. And when you do ask, you don't receive because you ask amiss. You're, not, you're asking the wrong way because you can consume it on your own passions, your own desires. In other words, it's a selfish prayer. You're using the right words. You've, you've got it framed beautifully, but it's not the right way to ask because you're not really asking, you're telling and that's presumption. And then there's a big oops. Why doesn't this work? Well, then some people just try harder. 
to try and make it work or fake it till they make it. Or they lose, lose their faith. Or they lose their faith, yeah. Well, God doesn't exist after all because yeah, he exactly. said this and it's not doing it. But, yeah. But, but it, it's your will be done, not my will not be done. Not my will be done, yeah. yeah. So that, that's what can happen to faith. What do we have faith in? You know, well, some people have faith in their faith. That's not good enough. Yeah, so that name, when it is used, when God speaks and he is endorsing something, then his word that goes out of his mouth goes out and achieves what it is going to achieve and doesn't come back empty. That's because it's, it's, it's him that's saying it. And there, there's a difference there. There's a difference. So we need to align ourselves with his will and what, what his spirit's prompting in us. Yeah. And, and that's how we should pray. Too, yeah, right? so. that, that's that's how we pray. Yeah. Uh, that's how we that's how we relate, and that's how we get to know how to be responsible for using His name. Because we can be really part of God's blessing to other people, um, knowing that He wants to actually bless us in our lives with who He is, and guide us, correct us, direct us, because we honour Him to have that place. So there's a lot of beneficiaries that can be there. And if we cheat the beneficiary by promising something that's not going to happen, damage can get done. So that's a responsibility. It can happen on all fronts. The person doing that exhausts themselves, really, trying to make something work that really isn't getting results. And, and that's when you say they lose faith, they also become very despondent and dejected. You know, well, What is the meaning? What works? What doesn't work? These first three commandments, I am the Lord your God, number one, don't make idols, and number two, and, bad and number three, don't use the name. They're all they're the first three don'ts, right? firstly, thou shalt not, followed by the fourth, which is obey the Sabbath. I believe that um, those first three, they sum up the thou shalt nots between us and God. There's only three commandments between us and God. The fourth one is not a thou shalt not. The fourth one is, I'd like to give you a rest and bless you in that time of rest so that you can watch me at work on your behalf because you trust me totally rather than being totally independent now that you've learned what my name is and who I am. So it's very important to see that this third commandment is really, it finishes off the way to live with God, to know his name. Because everybody is looking for special answers because the world is a mystery. You don't know how to negotiate with the world. How does it work? Do you get out of it what you put into it? Does it rip you off? You know, Can you beat it? Well, the world is there and it will do what it's going to do. Well, maybe there's a bit of magic I can work to get a bit more out of it. And that's there in every human being. Uh, when Paul was talking um, to the Greek philosophers in Athens, he walked around amongst them in the marketplace and he met up on Mars Hill, which is what the Romans call it, Acropolis. That's where they used to judge important matters and have big, lofty discussions. And they were talking about this Paul guy that's talking about this God, this Jesus. And they were interested because all they did was talk about gods. And so they said to him, we hear that you have... Uh, this God and they were gathering wanting to hear what it was he was talking about because they hadn't heard about this Jesus Christ and he said well yes and he got them on that issue you're interested in gods well how's this for apples you know like he says here's here's a God he said I noticed he said that um, you've got a, a, a plaque here saying 
uh, to the unknown God. So he said, that this must be an interesting one for you, the unknown God. And then he actually says, well, I'm here to tell you who the unknown God is. Because they must have had an acknowledgement that all the gods they had was not sufficient exactly. to explain everything. So they yeah. had to have this unknown God, right? That's it. Yeah. And, um, well, they had lots of gods. There was Zeus, Aphrodite. The Greeks had a few. Yeah. I mean, all around the world, there's Thor. You know, there's the gods of war, the gods of thunder. Yeah. Because these are inventions, because people don't understand cause and effect in their lives. They really wish they could get hold of the magic potion that would give them the ability to get more out of the world to what it actually is able to deliver. And it's built into us to think there must be an unknown something. Mm. So they had their unknown God. Yeah. And Paul picked up on that and said, I'll tell up, you who that I'll unknown tell you God who is. is. And yeah. so he met them where they were at he met them, yeah. and used that as the starting point, that is the starting which, which is important for any conversation was, that we have yeah. with somebody. Yeah. And, and, he's, and he says to them, one of your own poets has said, in him we live and move and have our being. So they had really come to the precipice of, of a great discovery. They had actually seen themselves enveloped in this godness. There's something there. It's unknown. So he says, well, this is the person that created everything and he has set the boundaries of every person. We're all of the one blood. You know, we've come from one blood and our appointed times, the boundaries of where we live have all been set so that, there's a reason for this, so that people would grope for him or seek after him. And I like that word groping in the dark, in the mist. Seek him and perhaps find him, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even one of your own poets would say. And he said, this God who's done that will judge the world. He'll call the world to account to believe in him, and they'll be called to account through this one man, Jesus Christ, whom he raised from the dead. So that was the clincher. They'd never heard that before. Now, they then had to make a choice, and a lot of them said, okay, I want to hear more about this. Some scoffed and walked off and didn't even bother. But you're right, he, he asked them about that. So, which, which is an interesting thing. When we, when we think about managing our life and what are our expectations of um, who's going to kind of, who is there doing the stuff? Who did create this incredible creation, this design, the, the mathematics, the science of it. There has to be an intelligence that's so much greater than I could ever imagine. Now, this didn't happen. And that's where everybody knows there's an unknown God. He doesn't have to be unknown. He can be known. And, you know, even, um, even kids um, want there to be an unknown God. Mm. With, in different cultures, they've got their... They've got their little magic unknown gods like Santa Claus. You know. mm. <laughs> He's the one. Or fairies. They get taught about angels, which are spirit beings and so on. But there is something in human nature, uh, which is a consciousness that there are things that happen that are out of the ordinary. And why do they happen? And they're kind of supernatural. And I didn't make that happen. I'm sure I didn't make that happen. I just put the Christmas stocking hung it next to my bed and I woke up and there's all these presents in it. Now, 
that's fantastic. So how did this supernatural thing happen? And it's and it's funny because it's there waiting somehow to be met, that consciousness of cause and effect. There is something out there that I don't know what it is, but if I get the formula right, maybe I can get it to do what I want. Now, that's a nice, innocent little thing for kids, but I tell you, people can carry that misconception throughout their lives and their their Christianity, their religion, whatever, is tinged with this magic thing. If I just get the right formula, if I put that tooth in the glass of water, the angel will come and there'll be a coin there. I mean, I, I, I know there's magic somewhere, but you can't bring your magic into an adult, grown-up, philosophical appraisal of cause and effect in life. You either say there is no such thing as a supernatural and it's just serendipity, certain things happen, I don't know where that, but too many of them happen where you know this is bigger than my comprehension. This is bigger than anything human beings can do. These things that happen come from an unknown source of absolute creativity and order and being and perfection. And there's this sense of awe and where's my little formula? Uh, we have to learn that there's nothing wrong with that, having that impulse, because all that is is, is recognising there's a supernatural cause and effect. And the beautiful thing about God, the I am, is this is you, well, I'd like you to meet me and let's do the journey together. There are different stages of consciousness. Do you mind if I talk about that? No, sure, go ahead. That's the first stage of consciousness that we have as human beings, the magic. And it satisfies us. And we all play the game, mums and dads and kids. And, but as I say, there comes a time when you really can't push that game too far, even though everybody's doing it. Everybody's doing their magic, all right? But you've got to put it in its right box. Say, look, that's, that is a very primitive kind of consciousness to live your life on. I mean, it's what causes gambling. It's like, this is how I'm going to win this and this. One. It's there, the magic. Right? Superstition. Superstition, yeah. Yeah, all of that. And when we see superstition in, in churches too. In churches, exactly right. So you've got to kind of grow out of some, one kind of a consciousness because your consciousness is who am I in where I am and what is going on around me? How do I fit into this scheme of things? That's your consciousness. Well, I know, you know and if you're a little kid, I know, because mum and dad told me this, which leads to another kind of consciousness, which is the mythical consciousness, which is you actually belong to a kind of tribe, which is your family, which you've got a culture, which you've got a religion, which you've got a history, which you've got legends, and which you've got myths. And I'm not saying myths are just imagination. They're real stories. They're archetypal stories, and they've got them. And they actually guide people through life. They've got m morals and ethics and taboos, and there's a conscience that's built into people. Depending on where you're born and who your mum and dad are, you're born into a thing with a mythology to it. And so you develop a mythological conscience. And that becomes incredibly important. And in the one suburb, um, I remember as, as growing up as, as kids, I was a Roman Catholic and, and that was my <laughs> mythology. And, and it was serious. And we knew what was right. We knew when church was supposed to be on. The Protestants had their church too late. And we just knew that they had it wrong. Why are the Presbyterians having church at 11 o'clock when, you know, we can have ours at 6.30, 7.30 in the morning if we get up early, <laughs> whatever. But there's this them and us, the mythology, which you attach your identity to 
because it's their, and I won't say magic, but it's their idea of what the source of reality and how to harness this to live productive, fruitful, ethical, moral life with an authority that knows if I do it this way, it'll work. And this way, my way is better than any other way. And there's a few hundred thousand of them. And we grow up in that and we become tribal. And that's why you have right-wing politics, left-wing politics. You've got 36,000 denominations in the Protestant church. And I belong to one of those 36,000 <laughs> Protestant denominations now. But you see, what we realise is that that's all come from a set of understandings of cause and effect that have become, mytho that have become the tribal identity. Now, you can live like that for the rest of your life, but it's better off if you don't get stuck in that. Yeah, and a lot of these are built up around traditions. They Tradition. become traditions, yeah. right? Which be, almost get on par with actually the way we should be living. The way and that we place, attach an importance to a yeah. tradition yeah. that it doesn't deserve. It doesn't, and, so, and that tradition's got a name. And so they use the name as an endorsement for their authenticity. We're better than you. We are Baptists. Like, we are Bible-believing Baptists. Oh, yeah, but we're Catholics. We were there first. And so there's the name is attached. And so you attach it to your identity. But that's a, that is a form of consciousness. Now, the next kind of arena of consciousness is rationality. Because you get a teenager... And um, he's listened to mum and dad and she's listened to mum and dad and they're, they're always right. And all of a sudden, um, this teenager finds, at a particular age, 14, 15, maybe 16, hang on, I've heard a few other opinions. I don't know if mum and dad have really got it right. And so they bust out, which is, it is a development, if you like, of learning to think. And so they become rebellious and they, they've got to prove it and they will actually do just the opposite to what their tribe has done because they want to get their own identity. Well, you can say, well, that's not a bad thing. And it isn't a bad thing. It is just a development in the consciousness of who am I. And you've seen it, haven't you? Mm. And so many parents get upset. They're starting to think for themselves. Well, let them. But be there and listen and have, have some good answers and encourage their ability to think, but make sure that the foundation that you've given them has got an answer for the hope that it can give a person in their life. Mm. And that's why it's good to know where God fits in. Yeah, and I think a lot of uh, kids who grow up in Christian homes need to be able to answer that question for themselves. Do I believe this just because I was born in a family that taught me this, yeah. or do I believe it because it's real? Yeah. And yeah, they have to answer family. that question. Yeah. And I think particularly as those kids grow up and get more exposed to opinions much more much broader than yeah. they have had in the past, particularly if they go to university or college or whatever, they get exposed to ideas that they probably haven't been exposed to before to the same extent, right. with the same level of passion. And that, that influences uh, a lot of uh, kids growing up in Christian homes, I think. So, yeah, that, and so then what are the influences and, and how does that, particular person, that young person, feel about their identity? Do they go along with what the group thinks and change? And they do. They change their entire identity because I'm more approved of if I think that. And so these kinds of influences are going on. And all of those are still there in every one of us. We've still got the magic. We've still got... The, I can remember my mythology. And I, I think about it. I think, oh, there was some good stuff there. 
but I'm kind of not attached to the magic and I don't have to really obey all those rules like I did because I can find a freedom in having some autonomy, but I want this to be on track, this rationality. I want to be able to think, but what comes after rationality? See, where do you go? And, and in some ways, the world has stopped at rationality. And they've said, well, we've come as far as we can. I think, therefore I am. We've got science. What we can observe, we can categorise, we can classify. We can now, because we can name it, and it's all about names, because I can name something, I've now got authority over it. And so they label things and they become the name and they have an identity. And you have identity groups that now have power because that name has got power and it will judge other groups that have got another name. So name is very important. That's why commandments one, two, three, the third one, when it comes to don't use the name in vain, it is so important because that's where it all hangs because that's where our, ident our identity comes from. If, we're, if, if we've got the right name, that we're into, that's in us and we're in that, we can actually journey through life with a sense of real meaning and purpose. We know who we are. But rationality, it's, it's, not, a, it's not a dead end. It, it is there like a cliff, if you like, because yeah, it is a cliff. Rationality, you come to the end of that and you've actually got to jump off. You've got to jump off the cliff of rationality into the unknown. Because there's still the unknown. Rationality can't solve the unknown God. It can describe it. But all it's describing is an intelligence and a being who's beyond your comprehension. But it can't own it, even though we often think we can. We can own God. We can't. We can't even define him because he can only define us. So the next stage of consciousness is what I call the mystical consciousness. Now, it's not creepy, it's not scary, it's not woo, ghosts and so on. Mystical simply means something, a mystery is just something that's hidden. And there is something that's hidden that we have to seek after that's waiting to find us. And that's faith. Actually begins to reveal to our spirit, this is not just a rational, scientific thing that you can measure. This is something that you know that you know, that you have within you something that is your life force. It is your spirit. And God reveals himself from out of the unknown into the known. And the Holy Spirit has been sent to all of humanity. When Jesus died on the cross and then he rose from the dead, he went to heaven and he sent the Holy Spirit. And then he gave a covenant. God relates. God talks. God's got a name. God is a person. God is a being. He is the source. He is the beginning, the middle, and the end. And having done that, he then invites us to get to know him. And he sends the Holy Spirit, and he makes this terms of agreement. And he says, this is how we're going to work together. This is mystical. But he says, you're going to be mine, and I'm going to be yours. And you're all going to know me from the least to the greatest. I'm going to show you my mercy. I'm going to forgive the fact that you're a weak human being and you blow it all the time. You can come to me and you can get the forgiveness of all of that missing the mark called sin because you're always missing the mark. And now you're going to hear it from me without feeling like you're a write-off, that you're worthless and you're useless. And he's saying to us, I know you think that, every one of you. You think, if only I were a better person and I've tried, but what's the use? And I can't stand being told what to do and I'll never be able to do it anyway. He says, I know all of that. 
I created you to have that reaction to life because you're limited. I'm not. You are. I'm going to allow you to have the Holy Spirit. That is my unlimited being is going to dwell within you and is going to lead you into all truth. And you're going to actually start to feel you know who you are and you're also going to know who you're not. And you're going to be aware of your shortcoming. And that awareness is not going to make you run away from me like you would have done in guilt before. But now you know that I'm a loving God, you're going to say, teach me what that is in me. Show me, why am I getting that wrong? And I'll show you your heart. And I'll be able to put something within you that is like a motivation that comes from my love for you that is able to make you more selfless than selfish. And you'll know what's happening to you. And Paul says, they that are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. They're the sons of God. They are actually in relationship in such a way that they're being led. And that word led doesn't mean follow me around just like a sheep. That word led means moved. You're led. It's used in the Bible not just as following somebody around or having a thing around your neck and being led by a rope. When people were taken into custody, they were led. Well, you don't call that leading. That's being pushed and moved and shoved. But God is actually... He's put the Holy Spirit into us to lead us, to move us, to drive us in a sense. Not in a harsh way, but there's a sense of momentum that happens in the spirit of somebody who said, I'll receive the Holy Spirit, I'll receive Jesus as the Lord. And that is mystical. Mm. But that becomes a consciousness. It becomes a way of being conscious of reality. Not magic, not mythical, not just rational. rational. Jumped over the cliff, we're now into the mystical. The thing that I noticed about the difference between that mystical phase and the previous three is that the mystical phase is all about relationship. Yes. And the first three have really little to do with relationship. Yeah, good. You've yeah. got it. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Mm. You get into the mystical consciousness and all of a sudden <laughs> the reality is a, is, a, is, a, is a new thing. God says, behold, I make all things new. You see things in a different way. You become more humbly aware of your shortcomings but it doesn't worry you anymore you're not scared of it you say of course i'm like that thank you lord for forgiving that i can be me but the real me i can lose my life so that i can save it wow i can go down and, and yet go up you know um i can be weak and and when i'm weak i'm strong because i'm not worried about having to push my weakness to the limit i can invite your strength in i can be part of what you're doing now that leads to another kind of consciousness that comes from after the mystical becoming revealed. And this is a word that's used a lot in, in, in our modern culture, philosophy and psychology and spirituality, but transcendent. What it means is we can now do things that we never would have thought we could have done. We can now look at something and say, yeah, that's doable. Like the Bible can say, rejoice in your sufferings. And you say, well, that's just a ridiculous thing. What do you mean? Laugh it off. No, no, no. The word means you can be lifted up. Your sufferings are there to cause you to learn patiently to endure. And that actually will form character in you. And that character will, as it starts to get formed, it will show that's the genuine you because you'll find there's something within you that is real, that's genuine, the character. And that character gives you a new kind of a hope. This is Romans chapter 5, verse <laughs> that character gives you a hope that makes you not ashamed. In other words, you don't feel useless. You don't feel worthless. You're limited, 
but you, you're now able to transcend the limitations, not by taking them away. God will never take our limitations, but you transcend the unnecessary suffering that you go through by being able to be buoyant in that. You do suffer. I mean, we've all got... You know what suffering is? Suffering is our reaction to our limitations. And so we've all got to do it. We all suffer. I do. All day long there's suffering because I'm limited, hemmed in, and I react to that. But you, you don't have to react to your limitations. You can respond to them and say, I can actually start being grateful here because I know that I've got someone inside me, genuine, that is going to help me be buoyant in this. And that's rejoicing inside. Because I've got a hope in front of me. Scripture goes on to say, this character gives us a hope whereby we're not made to feel worthless or ashamed or stupid or left out because the love of God is poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, which is given to us. In other words, this new life dynamic now transcends the limitations that are still there. It allows a kind of a robustness of reality to define the new person that you are. And that's all because of a name. Mm-hmm. And I think there are other kind of ways of sense of consciousness mm-hmm. I think the next one that helps you as you transcend that, I would say the next one would be a behaviour. It is like being part of what God's doing. Working with him rather than just trying to work out your own kind of feeling of comfort or uh, identity, appreciation or feeling okay about life and wanting to honour God. You now actually start doing things with God that are creative, that are changing and transforming the world around you. It's another kind of consciousness that you can be a person that thinks, I'm actually part of the answer. Now, I'm not talking about being proud. You could go too far there and use the name of the Lord in vain Mm. if you wanted to. But if it became a reality, if you thought, I'm willing to do this God's way, and you have a sense that when I pray, I know God's doing something in those people's lives. I'm not in charge of it. But I'm a part of what he's doing. And that allows you to feel a new kind of belonging to God and the things he's doing, which lifts you above the kind of despondency and downward spiral that life can bring upon you. That's a beautiful way to be able to to live. And that's what's called living in faith. That's walking in the Spirit. And it's like the Holy Spirit is your partner and he gives you this little nudge. So then you're using the name of the Lord. Uh, I, I believe in a productive way. So I always ask you this question about what's the transformational nature of each commandment, and I think you've probably already answered that in some way with the, these different so. stages of, yeah. of consciousness or different different yeah. ways that we can either relate to God or, or or perhaps substitute some other things in our lives for God around traditions yeah. or yeah, sure. or other things. And I like the way you position the commandments to say, you know, the first three are around how we relate to God. This final one wraps up those first three those very first nicely three. Yeah. with how we relate to God, really. And that's, that's what you're talking to, to with the consciousness. You've yeah. got it. So, so, but to talk about the transformation, that's interesting. While you're saying that, I'm thinking, Scott, which one of them is the transformational? But, but you know what? They're all transformational. You transform, change from a, a little kid with his magic into somebody that's actually getting a set of structure in their life because of mum and dad's um, mythology or because of their tradition and their uh, morals and ethics and they know that. That's transformational. 
Another transformation is you become a, a rational being and get some autonomy. That's that's transformation. We need to go through that and not be stuck in our tribalism. A huge transformation is the, the mystical. All of a sudden, things hidden. Ask and you shall receive, seek and you'll find. And the glory of an unknown God, all of a sudden, you know. And I suppose the, the most uh, kind of transformational consciousness that makes us our very being feel different is the transcendent one because you actually can take on things like selflessness. You're not even trying to oppose it, your limitations. You're transcending it. And, and I believe that is the most transformational thing that a human being can feel. Now, after that, it's up to them where they want to go. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks, Paul. Thank we'll you, look Scott. forward to commandment yeah, number, number four. four. Yeah, yeah, it's a bit easier. Okay. <laughs>